Good morning. It's good to be back with you all again. I hope everybody had a good summer. The last time I was here was the beginning of June. I can't believe it's already the last Sunday in August. Um, but I just got back from the beach yesterday, so I can't complain. Um, I want to start off just asking you, uh, and this might not apply to everyone. Some of you, like me, probably don't have a whole lot of money, so you don't really pay attention to the stock market. But I suspect that there are some of you who are kind of freaking out a little bit. It dipped down below 10000 again this past week. Uh, it's not a great time to be investing right now. The economy is a mess. And uh, maybe some others of you have experienced the economic downturn in different ways. Uh, it's not necessarily a lot of loss of your investment, but it's job loss, it's salary freezes. Uh, there's ways that we're kind of being shaken with how, what we put stock in in our lives. And one of the things that I want us to be thinking about today is, is where you invest your life. How do you invest your life? Um, there's wonderful things happening at this church from what we've already heard this morning. What are the things that you're investing in? Where do you place your hope? So I want to start off just getting you to think about this a little bit. Um, what do you think would make your life better? Put this where? Like that? Okay. Is that better? Um, what do you think would change your life? What do you think would make your life better? Another way to answer that question would be, how, how do you fill in the blank? Everything in my life would be okay if only... What do you need to make your life better? Another way to think about it is to pay attention to the things you daydream about. What do you daydream about? When you're sitting in traffic on the way to work, when you're sitting on the subway, where does your mind wander to when it doesn't have anything else occupying it? These are the things that we place our hope in. These are the things that, that we're longing for. So I don't, I don't know what it is for you. Uh, it may be a new job or a whole different career, uh, more money. Increasing your salary would probably be nice. Maybe it's a different housemate or better friendships or that relationship with someone. Um, what are the things you're longing for? Where are you placing your hope this morning? Now, uh, sometimes the things that we're longing for, you know, there's lots of good things. All the things I just mentioned, those aren't bad things to long for, right? Sometimes, though, our hearts go in darker directions. Some of you uh, are single, and it's really hard being single, especially the older you get, and it's hard having physical longings as a single person. And some of you may be saying, you know what, I've been waiting. I'm going to take care of this myself. And so maybe that means pursuing um, unholy relationships with other people. Maybe it just means pursuing stuff in cyberspace. Um, for some of you, maybe the longing and the hope, the things you're looking forward to, is just a little bit happier happy hour the next time. Maybe it's just, you know, this weekend will be better. This party will be better. And, and so you're living for longings that... Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're, they're not really good. But the bottom line is, there's things that we're longing for that we feel like we can't live without. But then, once you actually get it, once you actually lay hold of these things, what happens? It doesn't really satisfy you. Right? Last week's sermon, um, 
these passages kind of overlap, obviously, so this will be a little bit of a repeat of what Jeff said earlier. Philippians says, you know, I've told you this stuff before, Paul said, but it's no trouble for me to say it again. It's good for you. So it's good for us all to be thinking about these things again. Um, but Jeff, last week, Jeff talked about buyer's remorse. You know, the reality that, that we live with discontent. We long for things, and then once you lay hold of it, you're saying, wait a minute, this, this is what I thought was going to change my life. Um, and so all of us on some level are living with discontent. And especially if you're here, if you're not a Christian, you're just exploring what is the Christian faith about, I know that you know this experience. I know that you know this. You know what it's like to live longing for something, and then when you get it, it doesn't work. And then you think, well, I just need something bigger or better or more or whatever, but the more you keep chasing, it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy you. Uh, We'll talk about that more a little bit later. But the reality is all of us are living with unsatisfied desires. One of the things, just to kind of recap what Jeff talked about last week, is that the call of the gospel isn't that we stop longing for things. The call isn't that you just become this, like, stoic, unfeeling person who just doesn't care about life and and doesn't really give passionately my heart to anything. Um, That's not the call of the gospel. The call is that we seek first his kingdom. And that in seeking first his kingdom and finding contentment in Jesus, that ultimately then all these things he promised will be added unto you. And, and so the call isn't to lose your passions. The call is to have them oriented around the right thing. And then the reality is when you do that, um, you end up getting everything else thrown in. I love the way C.S. Lewis said it. If you shoot only for earth, you don't get it. If you shoot for heaven, you get earth thrown in too. Um, so... We're going to look at a couple different things um, this morning because this passage looks at the same idea of kind of contentment, but it also redirects it a little bit. So um, it's calling us to see our lives from a radically different perspective and to see our lives as investing in the kingdom of Christ. And so as we're kind of coming to a close with looking at Philippians, we're going to look at, at uh, four things of what I'm going to call kingdom capitalism. Um, so the first thing is, what is this about? What, what does it mean What is kingdom capitalism? The second thing is, what is the cost of living for the kingdom? Third thing is, what are the benefits that we get from living for the kingdom? And then the fourth thing is, what are some maybe specific ways that God is calling you to invest? So let me jump in here. Um, You probably have figured this out by now. Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians essentially as a thank you note. Uh, It's kind of interesting because he never actually thanks them anywhere in this letter for sending them money. Uh, He comes the closest to it in the passage that we're looking at today when he says it was kind of you to share in my troubles. And this is kind of a wild passage because he's doing a little bit of a dance. In the passage that that Jeff preached on last week, he's acknowledging the gift. He finally, at the end of the letter, is getting around to acknowledging the gift. But basically what he does is he says, you know, you sent this to me, but, you know, really I didn't need it. And I'm I'm imagining, you know, oftentimes Paul was dictating his letters to people. So I'm imagining Timothy, he says at the beginning, Paul and Timothy are writing. Timothy's writing his letter, right? Here's this younger guy writing a letter for Paul. And he finally, he's been sitting there saying, when's he going to get around to thanking him for the gift? And then he starts bringing up the gift and he's saying, we really didn't need it. And Timothy's sitting there saying, well, we finally have food, Paul. Like, how about you just say thank you? Don't tell him we don't need it. It's kind of nice having enough to eat for a change. Well, we're sitting in prison over here. Um... But he's been saying, you know, thanks for the gift, but I didn't really need it anyway. Now, he's taken, so he's doing a little bit of dance in this passage because he's coming back and he does want to acknowledge, it was good of you to give to me. It was kind for you to remember us. Um, He talks about sharing in their troubles. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And then he says, you know, 
he wants to show gratitude, right? He wants them to know that their care for him matters, that he is grateful for it. And so not only does he say, it was kind of you remember me now, he starts recounting a little bit of their history, of how they have a history of giving to him. And then, unless they think, you're looking for more. You're reminding us about how we've given before, time and again. You're looking for another gift. He says, don't worry. I'm not looking for another gift. I'm actually thinking about you. And you're giving to me. My concern in you giving to me is for you. And, and so he, he tells them that it's ultimately what is, what is being credited to their account. And then ends up saying that he is, he's, he's, he's overflowing. He's, he's received full payment. Um, and he promises them God is going to care for them. God's going to supply their needs. And then ends praising God, the God who gives, who provides, um, and worships him. So it's a little awkward at the beginning because he's saying, you know, I don't really need it. But then he is showing their care that they have. Um, let me back up a little bit so that you can get some idea of the context and why he's using this kind of language of commerce. Philippi was located on an important trade route in, in the Roman Empire. And so there was a thriving local economy. There was a merchant class. Some of you might remember from the book of Acts in, in Acts 16 where Paul goes to Philippi. There's a conversion of this woman, Lydia, who was a very influential, wealthy businesswoman in the community. Um, and so he's using language that they would understand. That would be very kind of Carmen parlance, common parlance. And he is um, wanting them to, to have it recast in ways that you and I really need to have it recast as well. And so look at, look at some of the language he uses. Um, he's talking about them entering into partnership with them. He's talking about these, again, the, the Greek words are kind of technical banking terminology when he talks about giving and receiving. Um, he talks about not, not seeking the gift that they give, but what? That the fruit that increases to your credit, to your account being credited. He's received full payment. He's well supplied. He's using all this kind of commerce language. And um, the point is that, that it be reframed, reframed so that they would have a different perspective on what makes life worth living. So... Uh, he reminds me of their history. And, you know, the, the book of Acts, if, if you don't have a Bible, Jeff encouraged you to take one. I would certainly encourage you to take one. The book of Acts would be kind of a cool place to read. As I was thinking about this passage yesterday, um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, the writer Luke starts off saying, because he had written one of the Gospels, Luke wrote one of the Gospels, has his name on it. The other book he wrote is Acts. And he says, the beginning of Acts, he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, and he says, the last book I wrote, I told you about what Jesus started to do. Now I'm going to tell you what he kept doing after the ascension. So in the book of Acts, um, we read about the things that Paul is referring to here. And so he reminds them of the history of their giving. And this is really important. First of all, he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. What does that mean? Why is that important? Why is it even in Thessalonica? Paul planted a church in Philippi, basically traveled right from there to Thessalonica. He passed through a couple other towns, but didn't really do anything there. In Thessalonica, he started a new church, stayed there for a little while, started a new church. So what is he saying? You guys started giving me money right away. As soon as you came to believe in Jesus, you were excited, you had a vision for the kingdom going forward, and you started investing right away, right at the beginning. And then he says earlier there in, uh, in verse 15, he says, when I left Macedonia, all these towns were in the region of Macedonia. So you had Philippi there, you had Thessalonica there, some other towns that Paul had been to. He says, when I left there, y'all were the only people that kept giving me money. 
Nobody else gave me money. You guys are the ones who did it, and you've done it time and again. And so he's reminding them of this history that they had and ways that they had blessed him um, and helped him out. So what do, what do I mean when I talk about kingdom capitalism? Uh, it's having this vision that is radically changed. It's talking about living in a way that your life demonstrates the hope that you have, that your time, your energy, and your resources are being invested in something bigger than you, something greater than you. Um, when we talk about the kingdom, let me describe for a moment what I mean by that very quickly. The kingdom refers to the fact that the world we're living in is broken. Right? All you need to do is watch the 6 o'clock news and you see that the world is broken. When Jesus came, he said the kingdom is here, and he demonstrated it by walking through this world, changing all the ways that it was broken. So when he saw a blind person, he touched him and they started seeing. When he saw a lame person, he touched him and they started walking. He was feeding hungry people. He was even touching the dead and raising them to life. He was saying all the ways that this world is broken, I am overturning. So living for the kingdom, for us, means being a part of that agenda, healing a broken world. It begins by loving God and loving other people, and then thinking through, in whatever sphere of influence I have, how do I overcome evil with good? How do I use my life in a way that the kingdom begins to spread and the curse is pushed back, that, that I work to heal this broken world? So that's what we're talking about with kingdom capitalism. Um, let me give you a quick example from... The first century, um, first century pagans in the Greco-Roman Empire was a very decadent culture like ours. It's probably even in some ways more decadent, although they didn't have as much broadly the way American society does. But um, pagans were known for being really stingy with their money and really loose with their bodies. And then they came to faith. And they became really stingy with their bodies and really loose with their money. The whole paradigm completely flipped around. What they were living for was radically different. In fact, there's, there's records of a Roman governor writing to one of his superiors saying, you know, you're telling me to persecute these people, but we have a public relations problem. Because not only do they help their own poor, they're helping ours too. You're asking me to kill these people. The citizens aren't real happy. That's an example of kingdom capitalism, a life that is radically reoriented in a way that the world is sitting around saying, whoa, what is going on with these people? Um, sadly, a lot has changed in 2,000 years. In our culture, I think there'd be lots of people cheering if they wanted to throw us to lions. So I think we need to think about that. It's a sad reality. Okay, that's what I'm talking about with, with um, kingdom capitalism. It's investing your life in a way that you're living for something greater. I had a great conversation this morning with a brother in the back. And we were talking about, you know, I work at this crazy ministry where we help people with sexual problems. And, um, and so I was talking about this with him. And, and he, was, he was sharing with me, you know, the thing that has been most helpful for him in his own personal purity isn't when he's like, how do I live righteously? How do I fight this thing? But when it's, it's when he has a bigger vision, when he's living for something greater. Um, there's all kinds of ways that, that living for the kingdom radically changes us as people as well as extending the kingdom. It extend, the kingdom extends in our hearts as well as outwardly. That would be a way to put it. Um, okay, so what is the cost? Like everything else, any investment, there is a cost involved. Um, look at what Paul says. and, and I'll, Let me touch on this, and then we'll go in a different direction and come back to it. Um, he starts off saying something kind of wild in verse 14. He doesn't say it was really nice of you to send money to me. right? He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
You've entered into my trouble. You've entered into my afflictions. The first thing I want to say about kingdom capitalism is that it's hard. The Christian life in general is hard. Now, again, if you're here um, investigating the Christian faith, this is not going to be kind of a warm, feel-good sermon telling you how Jesus really wants to be the icing on the cake of your life. Um, That isn't the Christian life. That isn't how it works. Jesus was straight up with us. Jesus said, you want to know what the Christian life is? Here's a cross. It's really heavy. It has splinters in it. You have to put it on your bare shoulder, drag it up to the top of that hill. When you get there, they're going to kill you. That's the Christian life. Anybody want to come on board? His promise to you is, though, on the other side of that death is resurrection. On the other side of losing your life for my sake, you will find life. So Jesus said, yeah, anyone who wants to hold on to his life is going to lose it. Anyone who's willing to lose it for my sake is going to find it. And if you are here this morning and you don't know him, again, this is something you're already aware of. You know the experience of buyer's remorse. You know the experience of trying to make life work, of trying to cling to something, only to find that there's really no life there. Um, The call is that we would die to ourselves, that we would let go of those things, laying hold of him, in order to find something better. So kingdom living is hard. Paul talks about in the passage earlier, um, the one that that you looked at last week, about having found the secret of contentment, having learned it. How did Paul learn it? Hmm? He learned it by suffering. How did Paul learn that Jesus sustained him when he was starving? He was actually starving. And Jesus met him there. Um, This is part of the reality. We we are forced to live through the trials in order to discover that Jesus ministers to us in them. This is radically challenging for people in 21st century America where we really like a pretty easy, comfortable life, right? Uh, In case you don't think Paul... Maybe you don't know much about the scriptures. You think it's just kind of blowing smoke. You didn't really suffer much. Let me read a couple passages to you. This is from, these are from 2 Corinthians. Uh, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, he says, For we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So he was so crushed by what he was enduring, that he was despairing of life. He goes on to describe what some of those things were. Later in the book, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So 40 lashes was supposed to kill you, right? So they just gave him 39. We'll stop there, and you'll live. So they gave him, that happened to him five times. He was, he was lashed to the point of death. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day on the, uh, adrift at sea. What does he say? I was on frequent journeys, in danger from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. But listen, the passage in 2 Corinthians 1, he was talking about despairing even of life. This is how he concludes. These things happen for a reason. Why? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So here's the reality. 
There is a personal cost to following Jesus, and it's hard. There's ways that he calls, if you're going to be invested in the kingdom, kingdom capitalism involves suffering. uh, Jeff mentioned last week that Paul had to learn this, right? How did he learn it? He learned it by enduring. And so we sang in the song this morning that whatever the circumstance, we will endure. That isn't to make you feel warm and fuzzy this morning. That's for Wednesday morning when your life hits the fan. Here's the reality. Um, Lots of us wish that the Christian life was easier. And, And you even see this, some ways that people like try to offer you the hope of Jesus, they say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The wonderful plan is that cross over there. So we have to be honest about that. But, but here's, here's the reality. We, we want it to be easier than it is. But we need to be willing to go through the trials in order to learn that Jesus sustains us. See, lots of us wish we could kind of stockpile grace, Right? We want to be able to have the grace ahead of time going into whatever the trial is. And so we wish we could kind of stockpile it and have it ready in our back pocket. But Jesus gives you the grace that you need when you're in the place that you're being crushed by whatever circumstance it is. That's when you get it. You don't get it before that. Um, you know, grace is kind of like manna. You know, if you remember in the Old Testament, manna, they, were, they had been brought, the, the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt at the Exodus. They went through the Red Sea, then they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And every day, God sent this sweet grain from heaven to sustain them. But you had to gather it every day. If you tried to take extra, it got all rotten and wormy and you couldn't eat it the next day. Every day, it was a dependence on what God was going to provide. And he's still calling us to live that way, brothers and sisters. That's still how he's calling us to live. And we've got to be willing to face the trial. We've got to be willing to suffer to receive the grace. That's the only way it works. We think if we can get the grace somehow ahead of time, you're not going to suffer. It doesn't work that way. And so, obviously, I had shared, um, the last time I was here, I shared about how I lost my wife. My wife passed away last year. Uh, There's ways that I have had to learn the truth of this like never before. That God's mercies truly are new every morning. That every day, his grace is there to sustain me, to enable me to parent my children, to enable me to go through the responsibilities I have to. Um, This time last year, I couldn't have imagined living the way I am right now. But I didn't have to. This time last year, I didn't need what I need now. Um, Now it's there. I see this a lot. You know, I know, um, I'll speak to my sisters. I know that you all struggle sexually, uh, that you guys are as messed up as we are. But I just have to use men as examples because I just work with men. So the, 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 men, the men that I work with, um, they really want purity, but they want it to be easier than it is. They want to be able to abstain from sexual sin and whatever their personal proclivity is, but they want to do it without a cost. Obedience always has a cost. Obedience is hard. But it's only when you're suffering in it that Jesus meets you there. If you want to learn the secret of contentment, if you want to learn what it means to have him satisfy your desires, you have to be willing to live with them unsatisfied first. But when you do, he shows up. So there's a cost to living in the kingdom. Um, That was kind of a personal cost. Let me just talk now briefly about a corporate cost to living in the kingdom. Um, the, the The Greek word that's translated here, trouble, 
It's a little bit weak. I mean, it's, it's accurate, but it's, it's not really getting at kind of the depth. The same Greek word, um, philpsis, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe, like, judgment on the last day, like this, the judgment, the disaster that's going to come on people who don't know God. So it's kind of an intense word. Now, that's obviously very theologically loaded in those contexts. Same load, you know, it's not the same kind of theological context here. But it really means, like, a deep affliction. This is deep suffering that Paul is saying that, that, that the Philippians are entering into with him in, in being a part of this. And this is what God calls us to in the body of Christ. To invest in the kingdom means suffering with other people. It means willing to, this is how Paul puts it in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's ways that, that we need to take on other people's Problems. We need to take on other people's issues and pain. Um, I love how Paul describes his ministry in, in Colossians 1. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And listen to this. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. There's a way that kingdom capitalism calls us to a radically different approach in relationship. You know, most of us approach relationships saying, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? How is this person going to benefit me? Um, the, the poet W.H. Auden uh, described it this way. Almost all of our relationships begin, and most of them continue, as forms of mutual exploitation. A mental or physical barter to be terminated when one or both parties runs out of goods. That's typically how, in the world, you approach relationships. What are you going to do for me? What do I get from you? Um, you know, it may come to this. I hope not. It may come to me going on eHarmony at some point. Um, but I have a visceral reaction against these things. And I'm not, like, casting judgment on anybody who's, who's doing that kind of, like, Internet dating thing. But here's, here's why I struggle with it. It's really wild to me that I should put up a list of reasons, like, my good selling points. You know? This is what makes me really worth shopping for. That's insane to me. That is, that is just perpetuating the broken way in the world that we approach relationships. What are you going to give to me? What can I get from you? God's calling is radically different. God's calling is that we lay down our lives the way Jesus did. That I don't think about how are you going to love me? How do you, you know, complete me? How do I, how do I lay down my life for you? I love, um, and some of what, what Sarah shared about the fact that through the rough period of her life, she needed people from this church to walk with her, to enter into that mess with her, to pursue her, to draw her out when she didn't want to be drawn out. Uh, we all need people to do that. That's what it looks like to invest for the kingdom uh, in the body of Christ. Um, it's investing without looking at getting back. The Philippians, apparently, there's probably been a little bit of a lapse in their giving from what we see in this passage. But there's also been a history of it, right? They've been giving to Paul over the years on some level, time and again, he says, um, without getting anything back. After initially Paul visiting them and preaching the gospel to them and starting the church, they weren't getting anything from him. When he says entering into giving and receiving, he's talking about what he's doing right here. He's sending them a receipt. I received full payment. Here you go. Here's your receipt. They weren't getting anything back from him. It was, on one level, a very one-sided relationship after his initial ministry to them. Um, are you willing to have one-sided relationships in the body of Christ? Are you willing to give to people that you typically would not be drawn to? How do you spend your weekend time? 
Who are the people that you pursue to spend time with? You know, this is pretty low-level suffering, but are you willing to pursue that person that's a little bit needy, that person that you really is just not kind of like the cool person you want to hang out with? Are you willing to pursue them and invest in them? And, you know, it is, it is low-level suffering to spend your Saturday night with somebody you're not particularly excited about. But here's the thing. You actually need the grace of Christ to do it well. In order to love that person, you really need Jesus to do that. Because otherwise, you'll just feel, on one level, you'll just like, I can't believe I'm here, I can't believe I'm doing this. Or you'll do it and you'll just walk away feeling really good about yourself because you so graciously condescended to love that person. Um, It's only through Christ's strength that you can humbly, compassionately actually enter into those kind of hard relationships. Um, What about deeper problems? What about somebody with depression? You know, a condition that you can't really see, that you can't really fix by snapping your finger, that isn't going to go away after three weeks of hanging out with them and, like, encouraging them. Could go on for months, could go on for years, could be decades. Are you willing to walk with people in ways that is costly to you? You know, I'm in the kind of ministry situation that people love. People love to bring the widower with kids a casserole, you know. Make sure those kids get vegetables, at least one meal this week. People love to give in that kind of way. It isn't really costly. Not that I don't appreciate it. (laughs) But are you willing to love people in ways that really cost emotionally? That cost your time? Talk about that more in a little bit. Where would God be calling you into different relationships? The kingdom moves forward as we incarnate the love of Christ to other people, particularly people that we would not typically move towards. Um, It takes time, and it takes uh, effort on our part, and it takes his grace to do it well. Okay, that was the cost. Let me move on to the benefit of of kingdom capitalism. Uh, There is good news here, particularly for those of you um, kind of investigating the Christian faith. It isn't all suffering. (laughs) There's a reason why we're here this morning. There's a reason why there's joy in the room, because it's not all suffering. The secret of contentment that Paul talked about is real. It's real. Jesus really meets us. Um, We have a living Redeemer who wants to bring healing, who who even brings joy in the midst of horrifically painful experiences. Um, And so what is Paul saying? He says, I'm not looking for a gift, right? I'm looking for the fruit that increases to your account, right, to your credit. Um, So what is he saying? Again, he's using this kind of commerce terminology, and he's saying, Philippians, you've made a spiritual investment. Um, It's going to be entered as a credit to your account and its investment that is going to increasingly be paying dividends over the years to come. So he's concerned ultimately about their well-being. He wants them to enter into this suffering. He wants them to suffer with other people because ultimately it's what's good for them. It's what's going to be blessing for them. And he wants them to experience the benefit of the kingdom in deeper ways. So we're going to look at four things. Um, The first thing is uh, what Paul talked about last Last, in the passage from last week, that the Philippians would learn the secret of contentment. Um, suffering thrusts us, trying to serve other people, and our own personal suffering thrusts us on Jesus like nothing else in life. Um, there's ways that Jesus has met me over the last ton, 10 months that I've never experienced before. Um, there's been a sweetness in communion with him that, I, that I've never known and had not known was possible. And 
as much as I would like to get remarried, part of me realizes that I'm experiencing something single right now that I won't have if I get remarried. Um, I think that's part of what Paul had in view in 1 Corinthians 7 when he encourages people for the sake of the kingdom to consider singleness um, because there are blessings in it. If you are investing your life, if you are pursuing him, um, he does satisfy us. He does want to bring us contentment and peace and joy. Here's, here's part of the reality for us. Um, why are your desires so insatiable? Why, does this, why is this phenomenon of buyer's remorse a reality? Because your desires were created to only be sated in something infinite. Your desires feel insatiable because they're actually infinite desires designed to be satisfied only by one who is infinite, who can meet you and satisfy them, who for all eternity, which as, you know, these like finite little creatures trapped in time, we can't even get our minds around eternity you'll be satisfied increasingly growing more and more and more and more and more and more forever um, because our desires were intended to be satisfied by an infinite God. That's the reason why they feel so insatiable. Um, and so listen to some of, the, some of the ways that he encourages us. He, he wants us, these are from the psalmist. Um, I just pulled out some, some wonderful quotes. He wants us to feast from the abundance of his house and drink from his river of delights. Is this how you see him? The God of pleasure who actually invites you to drink from his river of delights. He says that if we delight ourselves in him, he's going to give us the desires of our hearts. That in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, I think lots of times we feel like the call of the Christian life is just cut off my desire. God's saying, no, have your desires oriented in the right way. Because I have pleasures for you, you can't even begin to imagine. You'll spend all eternity never getting to the bottom of them. Um, I love what, this is from Psalm 107. It says, he satisfies the longing of the soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He's put these desires inside you that feel insatiable, because he wants you to bring them to his infiniteness to experience the secret of contentment. So that's the first benefit. He really does want to give you this. He really does want to satisfy your soul. The second benefit is even in this temporal world, he's promising to meet your needs. And so Paul is saying here um, in verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He's using the same language of, of supplying and meeting needs as he's referred to with himself. He's saying, my God is going to do for you the same thing he's done for me. And you sacrificially giving to me, don't worry about giving up your money. It's okay because he's going to actually show up and supply. He's going to provide for you. Um, I love the way he turns it around then in, in verse 20. And he's referring to, he goes from saying, my God, he's giving them this context of the one who's provided for me. Don't worry, he's going to provide for you too. He pulls it around in verse 20 and reminds him that he's our father. Again, it's pointing to the one who provides um, it reminded me of the place in uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching and telling us not to be anxious. And do you remember what he says? He says, who of you, even though you're sinful fathers, right? You're sinful fathers who make mistakes all over the place. But still, if your child asked for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. If he asked for, a, for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. Even though you're a sinful father, you still know how to love. You still know how to provide. Imagine 
about your perfect Father in heaven, how abundantly he wants to provide for you. Now, lots of us have had pretty horrific examples of earthly fathers, so the whole idea of God as Father can be challenging, and I realize that, but you need to see that um, the things you've longed for, the reason why it hurts so bad to have a bad earthly father is because it's such a broken picture of what it's supposed to be, of the Father who really does provide. Those longings for the Father to provide were put there by him, and he is the one who wants to satisfy you and provide for you. He promises to do it. He wants to actually meet your real needs. Um, now, one of the things, this is a whole other sermon, can't go into it today, beyond just saying this top line, of one of the things we need to separate out is our actual needs and our desires. A lot of times there's a huge gulf between what we actually need and the things that we really long for that we are hoping are going to give us life. Um, he's promised to meet your needs, and he's promised to satisfy you. Um, and again, increasingly, as we bring our desires in conformity with him, orienting them towards him, we do meet and find the contentment. Okay, so that's the second thing. He wants to meet your actual physical needs in this world. The third benefit that he mentions here is that... Um, I'm sorry, I got a little distracted. I lost my place. Um, the third benefit is that we are serving God. And so Paul's saying, your gift ultimately wasn't for me. And he picks up this language um, that's from the Old Testament in verse 18. He's, he's referring to it as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Uh, this is, again, there was a whole kind of, in the Old Testament, there was this whole sacrificial system. And so what you want to think about to understand what he's talking about, and, you know, my apology to the vegetarians out here, what you want to think about, especially during the summer, is like a really fat, juicy steak on the grill and how amazing that smells when it's cooking. That's what he's saying this is like. This is how God feels about it. This is this glorious thing that um, is being offered up. So the fragrant offering from the Old Testament was, was referring to the quality of it. And Paul's saying this is a glorious thing. This is something that God delights in. And, and here's this reality. Um, in calling to invest in the kingdom, you're actually serving the king. You're serving someone greater. You're serving the creator of the universe. You're doing actually what you were created to do. Um, and we see this all over the place in, in the New Testament I love the place in, in Matthew 25 where, where Jesus is talking about the last judgment. He's talking about the sheep and the goats. And he says, you know, the sheep are going to be brought in. And Jesus is going to remind them of the times that they fed him and clothed him and visited him when he was sick and when he was in prison. And they're all going to say, when? When do we do that? I don't remember doing that. And his response was, what? You remember when you did it to the least of my brothers, you were doing it to me that the ways that we serve other people is ultimately serving Jesus. It's ultimately serving our king. Um, in Colossians, Colossians 3, Paul is exhorting slaves, and he tells them that they should work heartily in all that they do. Why? Because they're serving the Lord Christ. They're actually serving Jesus and serving their earthly masters. That's the way it looks from a temporal perspective. But he's calling them to see a bigger reality and that, in fact, they're not serving man. They're serving Jesus. They're, they're part of something bigger. Um, and he, he tells them in that passage, you have the inheritance as your reward. So that brings us to the last point. It's um, the last benefit that we get 
is that we are serving the Lord Christ. We're investing in a way that we have the inheritance as our reward. We're serving the king himself. He's going to one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. And here's the reality. We started off talking um, about the challenge of investing in this world, right? It doesn't matter, you know, maybe you stay away from stocks, you do mutual funds. You know, mutual funds are getting hammered too. There's no way you can diversify enough. There's no foolproof investment plan. Um, the call of the kingdom is that you invest in something, as, as Peter says, that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Um, Jesus called us in the Sermon on the Mount again to, to not invest here where things like moths eat your stuff. Like you buy that wool sweater and you pay a couple hundred dollars and then you put it in a closet and a moth comes and eats it. You take it out the next year and it's got holes all over it. He's saying, why are you investing there? You know, or you buy a car, I bought a new car, I spent way too much money on this car, and it's going to get rusted out. That's what's going to happen eventually, right? Or thieves break in. He's, Jesus exhorted us, we need to invest in places that are safe and permanent. And it's investing in the kingdom. That's the only foolproof investment that you have. Um, I heard a quote that, that we need to put our happiness beyond the reach of our enemies, we need to put our hearts in places where they can't be touched. Um, put our investment in places where it can't be touched. You can go wacky with the last thing I just said because you do need to have a heart that feels. Um, so, yeah, just scrap that, erase that. Um, we need to invest in places that are safe um, and secure. And that's the calling. And, and so... One of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 6, let me just finish with this and then we're going to move to my final point, which will be really quick. Um, he calls us to, to invest not in earth but in heaven because he says where your heart is, where your treasure is, is where your heart is, right? That how you invest your life demonstrates what you truly believe. Did you hear that? That really needs to sober us. Where you invest your life, your time, your resources, your energy, demonstrates really what you believe more than any kind of formal confession of faith that you have. How you invest your life is a demonstration of your heart. So I want to ask you some specific things where you are calling to, in, where God is calling you to invest. I want you to consider where God is calling you to invest, particularly here at Liberty. How is God calling you to invest your life? Um, let me address a couple things. First off, some of you might be saying, well, you know, I just got here and I'm going to school and I don't know how long I'm going to be here. And, you know, um, okay. We live in a very transient culture. You could move every two years for the rest of your life. How are you going to use that excuse? Hmm? If you're here, God's calling you to serve. God's calling you to invest. Um, you will bless, however short term you're here, you will bless the people that are here and God will use it to prepare you for whatever it is to the next city you're going to go to. Some of you might be saying, well, you know, I've got issues. There's some things I don't agree with. You know, maybe you have issues with, like, the, the you know, Presbyterian way of, like, elders and stuff. Or maybe you have problems with infant baptism. Whatever it might be, you can't wait for, like, the perfect church that just lines up doctrinally or, you know, that perfect group of Christians. You just need to jump in. You know, again, the call in, in relationship is not what am I going to get, but, but how can I give? How can I lay my life down? So I want you to think about some specific ways. Um, you know, in the passage I quoted earlier from 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul talked about how he was despairing even of life, that quote ends saying, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through your prayers. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you to do, 
to be committed to, brothers and sisters, in this congregation. It's something that we often overlook. You all need to be praying for this family. You guys have got to be interceding for Jeff and Susan and their boys. You know, Paul, in the passage I listed, talks about his suffering in ministering to the church. Right? You all need to be praying for them. They need you to pray for them. The elders all need you praying for them. That is a significant way... You know, often we feel like saying, oh, well, I'll pray for you is just saying, well, I'm not really going to do anything. You know, I'm not really doing anything. Scripture says prayer is really important. It actually does something. It actually accomplishes something. I've experienced in my own life over the last 10 months the power of people praying for me and for my family. Believe me, I would be an insane man right now if people weren't praying for me. You need to be praying for them. That would be one thing. Second thing, this is, you knew this was coming... Y'all need to give money to this church. I don't know how you guys are doing financially. This is one of the benefits of just like showing up and I'm, you know, I just get to preach and say wacky stuff and then I can leave. Um, you guys need to give money to this church. Why? Not because they need your money. Because you need to be concerned about what's going to be credited to your account. Here's the thing. In our culture, we demonstrate what matters to us by how we use our money. It's the bottom line. What you pay for is what you value in this culture. I would say our two biggest cultural idols are sex and money. How are you investing yours? How are you stewarding your sexuality? That's a whole other sermon. How are you investing your money? Um, again, the concern isn't the needs of this church. The concern is truly, as Paul said, what can be credited to your account. It's an important way of smashing cultural idols to give. Um, another thing I would say is your time. How are you using your time? Y'all are not going to want to hear this, single people out there. I know there's a number of single people in this congregation. You feel really busy. You have more time now than you ever will in your entire life. It's just the truth. I know you don't want to hear it. You feel real busy. You're not. Believe me, you're not busy yet. You're really not. Now is the time to start investing, starting to think through, how do I lay down my life? Because really, that's the calling. And I know a number of you that are single probably want to be married. You know the best preparation for marriage? Start serving selflessly, because that's actually what it's all about. And you really learn that when you have kids. No offense, ladies. They're not listening. Um, so, how are you spending your time? Take some time this week to look at what do I do with my time? Where do I invest it? How much me time do I need in my life? Um, I will pray that the Spirit will convict you over the course of this week. It's hugely significant. How we spend our, our time in some ways in this culture is our most valuable commodity, even more than money in some ways. Um, and then there's all kinds of tangible things. Again, you know, since I'm not, like, down here as a full-time member, I don't know what all the needs are in this church. I know they probably need um, people helping out with children's ministry. We always need any church you go to. They need people helping out with children's ministry. Uh, people to learn how to lead small groups, home groups is significant. Um, I'm sure the setup team is always in need. Talk to Jeff. Talk to others. Talk to other people in leadership. There's any, if you are willing, they will find a place to put you. There are ways for you to serve. Um, we desperately need to be doing this.
You know what it's like to live discontent, right? You know what it's like to live for yourself and the emptiness that comes with that. The invitation is for you to start living for something bigger, to start living for something that actually does satisfy your soul, to learn in deeper ways what you were created for, to serve this king, because his promise is eventually, one day, I'm going to give you the secret of contentment now. I'm going to give you grace now you didn't know. I will bring joy into your life that you didn't know was possible. Even as you go through trials, as Paul shows again and again through this letter, and one day... The call will be to enter into the joy of your master, to hear these glorious words. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to see how our lives need to be changed. Lord, we are so... It is what is natural to us to live for ourselves, to live for our own comforts, our own pleasures, to move towards other people thinking what we can get from them instead of what we can give. Lord, this is just what it means to be human in this world. And we so, natural, we, we so desperately need you to overcome what is natural to us, to fill us with your spirit and to give us a supernatural transformation that we would become people who see the joy and delight in laying down our lives, who increasingly begin to look like Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve and to lay his life down. Lord, I pray that you would give us that grace. I pray that my brothers and sisters would look at how they spend their time this week, that they would consider what does it mean to not approach church as a consumer looking to get but as one who is laying down their life. Lord, we thank you for Sarah and for her being sent out. And we pray that you would indeed raise up others whose vision is so captured by your kingdom that they would desire to sacrifice much, believing the reality that uh, nothing we give up for you is lost, but that everything we sacrifice is an investment that is going to bring eternal, glorious reward beyond our ability to comprehend. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.